Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace. And today we are we are centering our focus on you and how you are relevant to the process of soul care and uh, counseling ministry. So be with us, guide our minds and our thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we think about uh, God, just initially, what are some, what's the relevance in a, in a practical way of God in soul care ministry? I mean, are we able to articulate that and think through that creatively? Any thoughts? Why is God important? He's in control. Mm-hmm. Yes. We want to be in control. That's great. He loves us. Yes. Excellent. He is powerful over all things. Yes. Accomplishing his purposes in all things. Excellent. He's accomplishing his purposes in all things. Yeah. Great. He knows our innermost being. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? All those were very good and right on target, and <clears throat> we'll unpack a lot of these things right now. Um, Louis Burkhoff said this, For us, the existence of God is the great presupposition of all theology. Um, Dr. Eric Johnson, who is a Christian psychologist, um, very good friend of mine says this a Christian disciplinary matrix for psychology begins with considerations of God we have to begin with God and then Larry Crabb who um, you, you guys may have heard of um, Trinitarian theology should inform the core of our approach to counseling Okay, so when, when you sit down with people who are suffering and who are hurting um, very often they're coming in wanting relief hoping for relief, and sometimes that can become the center point of their purpose in the counseling meeting or in a, um, a counseling session. Um, and when that happens, God is not at the center of that. And so we have to find a way to creatively and lovingly and mercifully reorient their minds through our relationship with them each time we sit down that that this this struggle this situation and this meeting is ultimately about god um let me read isaiah 48 8 through 11 you have never you have never heard you have never known from of old your ear has not been opened for i knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel for my name's sake i defer my anger for the sake of my praise i restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give another. And so it's very clear in this passage that God's plans and purposes for dealing with Israel in the manner he chooses centered in his namesake, his praise, his own sake, and his glory. The motives behind his interactions with humanity are driven by an untainted zeal to be glorified upon the earth. And this theme resonates throughout the entire scripture. Okay. So we always want to make sure that 
that we're being driven in our counsel, the way that we're interacting with people, and then the way we're guiding and directing them, we want to make sure that, that it's all centered in the glory of God. And that's, in our culture, in the self-help culture, that, that at times can be very challenging uh, because people, there are so many things out there that are the one, two, three steps of, of healing that people don't even sometimes have the, or they have the capacity, but they're not trained to think this moment is about the glory of God and how I'm dealing with all of this and, and how I'm going to deal with even my emotional state is ultimately about the glory of God. It's not about me feeling better, though we hope they can feel better, but it's about the glory of God. Um, some more passages in the Old Testament that point uh, to the cadence of God's glory in the Bible. First Chronicles 16, 24, and 25. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. Uh, First Chronicles 16, 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. And then we also see this um, in Jesus Christ himself and his ethic of ministry. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Um, and then in John seventeen four, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then again in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the, the very thing that drove Christ in all of his ministry was the glory of the Father. It was, it, was, it was nourishment to his soul. It was almost what he uh, survived on. This is why he did the things that he did was for the glory of the Father. And we want to imitate Christ in that. And it's very easy, I promise you, when you're sitting down with someone to give in to a pressure um, to, to, to be more of just a self-help mindset. You want to you fix the problem. Or you, you put the pressure on yourself to make all, all things right or all things good. Or you put pressure on yourself to have the right answers. And sometimes that can get in the way of what really needs to be going on in that moment. And sometimes you'll be in a situation where you may have to confront someone. I know when I got into counseling, I thought, man, this is going to be an awesome profession. I'm just going to get to go love on people and encourage them and make them feel great. And then I'm sitting in these meetings and people are doing things that require confrontation. And I started realizing, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> and for a good year, I really struggled. The first year of, of, of my life as a counselor uh, was uh, included much doubt and much fear and anxiety because I was realizing that my job required me to do a lot more confrontation than what I was prepared to do. And I didn't like doing that. Uh, but that was God shaping me. And that was God dealing with issues in my own heart so that I was in that context and he was changing me probably more than he was changing the people that I was sitting down with but it was the glory of the Lord that helped me realize I have to be willing to do this and if you if you want a good resource you know if you find yourself in that same situation where confrontation is difficult uh, a wonderful book that I, I read two or three times that first year is called when people are big and God is small and what this book is, uh, it's written by Ed Welch, and he's putting forth this paradigm that we are always operating in the fear of the Lord or in the fear of man. Uh, and, if, and the fear of the Lord, obviously not being that he's 
in the heavens ready to strike us down with a lightning bolt, but it's this idea of being in awe of God as you would be in awe of a king. And as you're consumed by that awe, it motivates you and, and gives you the courage that you need to glorify his name when confrontation arises. Another scenario, um, I've shared with you guys the story of, uh, of the grandfather who um, was, he is a registered sex offender and uh, he, he tried to actually seduce his own grandson. Um, and in those moments when you're sitting with people that are wrestling or have wrestled with those kinds of sins, there's a tendency to want to become self-righteous and arrogant and angry and harsh and the glory of God is very important in those moments. Uh, I have sat with people that in my flesh, <clears throat> you know, you'll, you'll find people resist you. You'll find people, they, they may want to argue with you. They may, uh, they may get angry with you uh, in, in a meeting when it's difficult. Or maybe it's the fifth meeting and you've told them the same thing all five times and they're not listening to you or implementing anything that you're asking them to do. It's, it's easy to become selfish in those moments as a helper. It's easy to, if we're not careful, to make it about us and who do they think they are. We're giving of our time. Uh, why aren't they listening? Um, and then we can become a bit sinful, even in our attitudes. Maybe we don't say something, and maybe we're not rude to them outwardly, but inwardly. You'll walk away from that meeting, and what you're thinking about that person and what you're thinking about that meeting is either going to be to the glory of the Lord or not. Um, and I, I'm, I'm in that situation all the time. And the only thing really that rescues me from becoming self-centered when people aren't listening or people aren't following through is the glory of God. So that's why this is so very important. Um, so the Old Testament writers, Christ, and then you see it also in the disciples and the apostles. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves by strength with, that, with, that, with uh, the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then Revelations 4, 14, 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And you can just look throughout almost every page of the Bible and uh, it's encouraging us at all times to glorify God. Okay. And for me, this is central. Um, if I'm going to speak truth into the lives of people, the, the driving agenda that I want guiding me is God's glory. Otherwise, I'm going to get lost in my own way of, of thinking, in my own uh, uh, patterns and demands as a person who's helping. Um, and so I want to always bring myself before God and make sure that um, the counsel that I'm giving is driven uh, because I want to honor him. Um, in order for people to understand themselves, in order for people to understand their own hearts, they have to first grasp an understanding of God. In psychology, all the research, all the theoretical assumptions that are out there begin with who? Man. Um, never begins with God, ever. 
Matter of fact, evolution, evolutionary psychology tells us that God is a, is a product of, human, of the human mind uh, that was developed for two purposes, to survive under harsh conditions or to control people. Um, and while both of those things may have been a part of, uh, of human history, uh, God is not a product of the human mind, but that's where all psychology comes from. We begin from a different place. First of all, the glory of God, but also um, who is God and, and why is he relevant in the struggles that we have? John Calvin, you guys have probably heard this before, said these word, or wrote these words in his Institutes. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. And there's a wonderful pattern for us that if we really want to help people understand their own struggles, uh, and if we want to understand the struggles of others, we must begin with God. What do you guys think about that? Any thoughts? I have a question about it. Go for it. I, I, I agree with that completely. I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, how, how do I apply this, or can I apply it to an unbeliever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's a great question. And in, in one of... Um, when we get to, to actual techniques and, and things to do in a, in a meeting, we'll hit that heavily. Um, but even, e- even our understanding of God and his relationship to humanity, how does that inform how we talk to an unbeliever? God is really good at showing us our weaknesses and our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And that Okay. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So it brings a sense of humility to that meeting where we can't look down our nose at someone who doesn't believe in Christ. That's a great, great point. I had to do this in my own thing. So I said, no, what do I do? Because this person thinks too well of me. Yeah. Yeah, people can hold us up or they can... They can sometimes feel that we're going to be judgmental of them. One, one thing that I think is very significant is that the scriptures teach us that every human being that walks the earth is created in the image of God. And as a, as a person, that's going to inform how I treat that individual, uh, how I talk to them, how I view them. Even though they don't share my faith, they, 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 um, they have the imprint of God upon them. Um, which is beautiful, and therefore I'm called to treat them with dignity, to treat them uh, honorably, to respect them, and to love them. So I think, in part, that that feeds what what, um, what we do with unbelievers. But we will cover that uh, very specifically on down the road. But it's a great question, and it, all, and it always comes up. Like you say, uh, if we compare ourselves to others, we may look better than it, but if we compare ourselves to Yes. Yeah. God keeps us in our place. And if we're always operating in reference to God as, as people serving, we never have a, a, a right 
or an excuse to function in pride and to function in self-righteousness. So it's very important for us, in order to treat people well, to always have God in view for ourselves. <clears throat> um, so, uh, biblical soul care, like no other form of Christian soul care, recognizes that if we fail to consider God first, then it becomes impossible to understand ourselves psychologically, ontologically, in terms of who are we and, and what is our purpose on this earth, uh, existentially, what is, our, what is the meaning of life, what is the meaning of our existence. Accurate self-knowledge becomes illusory while the purpose of counseling and soul care becomes entangled by a man-centered ideology. Self-healing begins to trump God's glory. Okay. And it's easy to get caught in that trap of self-healing becoming the, the primary <coughs> objective. Yes, sir? What do you mean by self-healing? Self-healing being um, that a person comes in and they sit down with you who and they're very depressed. And suddenly, every meeting that you have is all about the depression and how to get over the depression. And not much is being uh, thought of regarding the Lord, regarding God in that moment. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so a person can come in who is depressed. Uh, they can talk hours on end about that struggle, how heavy it is. And there is a place for that. We, we need to give them space to talk about the suffering, to talk about how difficult it is. We don't need to try to give them a quick answer of how to get over their depression, or we don't need to necessarily give them a Bible verse to hold on to because that can minimize their suffering, that can minimize their struggle. So there's, there's always a place, the first few times you're sitting down with someone is to really get into their shoes and really hear them, listen to the struggle, and then empathize with them. Try to have compassion. What must it be like to be that depressed to where you can't even get out of bed? But you don't want the primary objective of every single meeting moving forward to be, how do I get over my depression? Because quite honestly, I've dealt with people who have suffered from depression for decades, and they may not get over the depression. There's something chemically going on. There's something biological going on. Um, I've, I've counseled people who have gone through electroshock therapy. So they, they've, they've subscribed to a form of treatment that has damaged their brains so terribly that depression is going to now be a part of their lives forever. Electroshock therapy they say does good short term but long term it just doesn't last and so if I'm just focusing on self healing how do I get better then I could actually create a profound sense of hopelessness and despair for that person if that depression doesn't subside so I might do something like this here's, here's something that I have found has been a meaningful thing to people who are struggling with depression I will talk to them about the widow and uh, the, the, the Pharisees. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, and you, you see the Pharisees giving a lot of money, and you, you see the widow give a coin. And he said, who has just given more? And the message that he is sending is the widow out of her poverty. She has nothing, but she gave everything that she had. Well, for a person who's struggling emotionally, this is a great analogy. Because for this individual, getting out of bed and taking a shower and making breakfast for the kids takes every ounce of mental and psychological and physical energy that they have.
But they get caught in this mindset that, that uh, they, they suffer from a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because they feel like, hey, all I can do is get up and barely take care of the kiddos as they're getting ready for school. I'm a terrible person. I'm a failure as a Christian. But when we orient that all of that around the glory of God, we begin to, to say to them, you know what? God sees that you're operating out of your own mental and emotional poverty. And he's glorified. He's glorified when you get up and you choose to take a shower and get ready and face your day with your kids. He's glorified as much in those so-called mundane moments as he is with the greatest missionary doing the greatest work overseas. He's glorified because he knows you're giving out of nothing. So when you get up tomorrow and you put your feet on the floor, realize that act is worship. You've just worshipped the God of the universe and he loves it and he, he appreciates it and he's glorified and that's what you are created to do. There's the difference. And how would that translate to a non-believer? Well, a non-believer, um, that is a very different paradigm um, because the non-believer is not really going to understand that. And so uh, we just have to continue to love on the non-believer in that moment, do our very best to incarnate the compassion and the kindness of Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open that conversation where we are going to uh, artfully and wisely introduce the gospel uh, in a way that's meaningful and do that um, over time and trust the Lord with that person's heart. And we could even give that story and say, for the Christian... Here's the reality that the believer gets to live in. For the person that doesn't really have relationship with God, we don't have this. So you would just say, you know, this, I'm just coming from a, a biblical point of view. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It would speak to that. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you don't go to self-healing as they're on the whole. No. You just say, here's what, yeah. you know, here's what the Bible says about that, and then give them that option. And either they like that and they back for more or that just doesn't do it for them and move on yes and and a very important piece of that is are we being christ before we're speaking of christ i had a woman come to me my wife plays soccer and uh, a lot of non-believers on that soccer team and one of the ladies found out i was a counselor and she got my card and sent her friend to come and see me, and this friend was not a Christian. It was a woman whose son had been imprisoned for um, uh, child pornography, and she hated her son. She was so mad at him. But she comes in my office, and I, you know, my Bible's sitting there, and she knows she signed the consent form. I'm a biblical counselor, <clears throat> and um, she's got, you know, she's got a mouth like a sailor. I'm not correcting her. I'm not gasping when she's talking she's talking about despising her son I just step in her shoes and I I just hurt with her and weep with her and tell her I can't imagine how difficult this is and over about a five week period uh, she wanted she said you're not like the Christians that I've heard of before Um, you're not preaching at me you're just loving on me and you're listening to me and you're not lecturing me um I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here to love on you and to help you and to guide you the best that I can because you're in a terrible situation. 
But it opened up a conversation about the gospel. And I got to share the gospel with this woman. And uh, I don't know, she never made a, a, a formal profession of faith with me, but she got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications of the gospel on her life as a, as a hurting mother. So being that person who is incarnating Jesus draws people in, and, it, and the Holy Spirit is the one that guides the, you know, the, the question of something's different about you, and uh, tell me about this Jesus that you serve because it looks a lot different than the guys that I see on television kind of thing. Um, so in order for us to really understand people, we want to begin with God, and we want to begin with who is he, and why is it relevant to us? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about um, the attributes of God for a moment. All of them you've probably heard of, but we're going to talk about their implications for the work of ministry and soul care. Okay, so omnipresence, God is everywhere at all times. <coughs> So the, the implication of God's omnipresence is this. God's constant presence in part points to his personality. Like an attentive side-by-side parent of a child in a, in a mall, God is always there. When Paul addressed the Athenians, he made it clear that in God we live and move and have our being. Paul is driving home the point that God is not a piece of stone or wood or some theological idea. We personally interact with him and answer to him. Since this is true, we may proclaim with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. We must operate with this mindset continually. We are wise to guard against the tendency to reduce God to a concept, a memory verse, a method, a machine, a formula, do X and God will do Y, or a disconnected entity. God is present and his presence infers his inevitable personal activity in our affairs and in our Soul care. Okay? So when you're sitting there with a person, uh, and I do this frequently, and I'm getting a little overwhelmed and a little confused because I don't know which direction to go, uh, guess what? I get, to a- I get to ask God in that moment, help me, Lord. I know that you're here. I know that you care about this person in front of me, and we both need your direction right now. And I may do that silently in my own mind, or I may say to the person, look, This is big stuff. Can we stop and pray for a moment? Uh, Because we want to make sure that our hearts are very attuned to what the Lord is doing here. God is there. And he's a part of the ministry that we do as counselors, as people uh, in soul care ministry. Never forget that. Um, Omniscience. God has complete and perfect knowledge of all things, including the past, present, future, and everything actual or potential. God's perfect awareness of all things, past, present, and future, provides a powerful context for faith. Any counseling issues that present themselves to us are not hidden from the mind of God. He has always been aware of them. His awareness of our experiences means that we are not alone in them. From this vantage point of counseling, this knowledge is extremely intimate. Consider the words of the psalmist. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Um, 
our cognitions or our thoughts, our daily activities, and our words are always before the Lord. Our final goal of counseling regarding everything must be to glorify God. He is present, omnipresent, but he is also actively aware of everything going on in the universe and in our lives. Therefore, we are accountable to him in all that we say and do to others. Uh, psychology has attempted to act as if humanity has been liberated from what they might view as the tyranny of absolutes, assuming people are free to decide their own customized path towards personal happiness. We, however, will always be mindful of the sobering, sobering words of Hebrews, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. A, a comforting thought for me when people come to see me is that uh, the Lord was mindful of the things that they're going to share with me before they were ever cre created or on this earth. And the Lord has been mindful of all of the difficulty, the trauma, the abuse, whatever they're bringing to me. He's been mindful of that. He's been aware of that. And he has an agenda long before they stepped into my office, which means that I don't, the starting point of them and God is not them and me. Uh, God has been with them and he's been aware of everything that they've struggled with. It's not a surprise to him. It doesn't need to be a surprise to me. Um, and that's comforting to me, that this isn't something, this information isn't new information. It's new information to me, but God has known about it for all eternity. And it, it just presses me towards him to trust that this is big stuff and it's a lot bigger than me and it's a lot bigger than my skill set at this moment. But I'm, I'm working with a God who he, he's, he's, he's been aware of this for all eternity. And so I need to relax and, and continue to trust in him. Uh Immutability. God does not change in his essence, character, purpose, or knowledge, but does respond to people and their prayers. For, for us, uh, the hope is this, that God does not and will not change. Within soul care, this provides certainty in the promises and character of God. This, these are things that we can be certain of, and it's things that we need to try to engender in those that we're serving. Certainty of his forgiveness of repentant sinners. Certainty of his love, certainty of his promises of salvation, certainty in his faithfulness in our sanctification, certainty in his power to transform, certainty in his purposes of transformation, certainty in his means of transformation, and certainty in his holy judgment of sin. And more, and we could say a, a lot more there. But because God exists, we do have absolutes that we can anchor ourselves in and and point people to. For the alcoholic who keeps falling off the wagon uh, and is a believer, the certainty of God's faithfulness to that person is huge because they get on this, uh, this performance track where their holiness and standing before God is anchored in their sobriety. It's anchored in their ability to get the next coin in AA. As long as I don't take the next drink, as long as I'm uh, staying sober, then then I'm a, a good Christian and acceptable acceptable before God. But what happens when they fall off the wagon, so to speak? God's faithfulness is so important in that moment. That, hey, even in your struggle, even in this fall, God's glory is, is just singing in all of this because Christ your union with Christ 
says this, you're always acceptable to God. Whether you're performing well, whether you have just fallen in a major way in this particular sin struggle, let's, let's not focus on the fall. Let's focus on the gospel. And why does it matter? And why can we say that? Because God is immutable. And he's told us that he's faithful. And he's told us that union with Christ makes us acceptable to him because of Christ. Beautiful things that we have opportunity to share with people. It's not, we're not in an arbitrary situation. All other counseling uh, theories, it's, they're, they're anchored in thin air. There's no absolutes. There's no certainty. A person that's operating from that vantage point cannot say with absolute certainty, uh, here's the truth. And here is where you can find your rest in the faithfulness and goodness and love of God. Yes, it doesn't feel like you're changing as quickly as you would like to change, but guess what? The timing of the Holy Spirit is perfect, and we must trust His timing. If I had a, I say this often to people, if I had a magic wand and could make this better, I would do that, but I'm operating from a finite place, and that would probably not be the right answer because that's not what God is doing in your life, and we have to, we have to trust His timing. What is he showing us about himself in all of this? And what is he showing us about your own heart? And then uh, eternality. God has no beginning or end and is not bound by time, though he is conscious of time and does not work in time. So for us, we experience our lives in the context of God's eternal nature. Before anything, there was God. The psalmist reflects on this marvelous wonder. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And again, just his, his character just brings this sense of form um, to everything that's going on. It feels chaotic. It feels out of control. But there's an, an eternal God uh, who tells us that all of this is unfolding according to the perfect counsel of his will. And it doesn't make sense, and it's upside down, and we live in a fractured, fractured world, but all of this is, is unfolding uh, with a God who is not fractured, with a God who is not uh, chaotic, but a God who brings form and, and meaning to all of this. And then finally, the sovereignty of God. God is supreme in rule and authority over all things, though he does allow human freedom. The word authority contains within itself the word author. Uh, and this is a quote from R.C. Sproul. God is the author of all things over which he has authority. He has created the universe. He owns the universe. His ownership gives him certain rights. He may do with his universe what he is pleasing to his holy will. So the sovereignty of God means that God ultimately rules the world and human beings do not. He is the center. We are not. And when we struggle, when I struggle, I tend to want to be the center. Okay. And the sovereignty of God for me as a, as a counselor who sits with hurting people, uh, I would probably have had to retire a long time ago if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. Because um, this work that we're talking about is hard and sometimes it, 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 there's a lot of blessing in it lot of blessing in it but sometimes it's very hard and sometimes it's very confusing and sometimes it's very sad and it can be very discouraging and when I sit with eight people in a day and they all eight of them are in a terrible place 
if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I, I don't know what I would do driving home. I would live in a constant state of despair. <laughs> but I can say because of the sovereignty of God, Lord, this doesn't make sense. It's very sad. And I pray for these people. But at the end of the day, I have to sit and rest in your sovereign hand. Because none of this is outside of your control. And your understanding of why certain things are happening is perfect. And I just need to continue to try to, to press into your understanding and not try to and, and not get bogged down in my own finite understanding of things. Um, so sovereignty of God is huge for us as we minister to other people because uh, living in a fallen world is tough, especially when you, when you do this kind of work, you're choosing to get real with people. No more Christian platitudes. You know, you're getting into the real uh, uh, nitty-gritty of existence. And the hope that we have is that God is sovereign. And we don't have to panic. We don't have to freak out. And you will be challenged. You will be challenged at times. Um, but it's an awesome sanctification, sanctifying uh, experience for us, the helper, to be challenged in these ways, to face things that we're like, no, this cannot be happening. Uh, and, and even in our own minds, you know, questioning God, really, really, and then wrestling through that, and 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 asking the Holy Spirit to constantly help us have a faith in Him and not give in to our own fallen perspective. Those are the unshared attributes of God. Those are attributes of God that that He alone possesses. But there are also uh, shared attributes. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, let's see. I don't think those printed out, but let me look here because I want to share these with you. What are shared attributes of God? You guys know. Yeah. Things that we can have that God has. Okay. Yeah. It's th- it's it's attributes of God that we can al- that also are reflected in us. Okay. Um, fruit of the spirit. Yes. So here here are some. I'm going to read the shared attributes and then I'll read the implications. Okay. Holiness is a shared attribute. God is absolutely separate from any evil. Love is a shared attribute. God ever moves out from himself to give himself away and satisfy the other in his goodness. Truth. God is the source of all truth. He is the embodiment of truth. Righteousness. God always deals in perfect fairness and justice, always doing the right thing for every being in every circumstance. Mercy. I think someone said mercy. God shows kindness, patience, grace, and favor toward people who are helplessly broken and evil. And then finally, beauty. When we consider God's holiness, love, mercy, and pure goodness, we are contemplating issues of beauty, true beauty. God's holiness exposes the loveliness of God's sheer and pure goodness. So let's, let's think through some implications here. Um, and if we don't get through all of these, we'll, come, we'll start here next week, okay? Holiness. 
God's intention in redemption is to share his beauty and spread his beauty by fashioning his people to reflect his holiness. In essence, the grace of God is designed to make believers more beautiful as they more and more reflect him in his holiness. So connecting this idea of holiness and beauty. God's attribute of holiness also provides form to the set goals of counseling and the change process. The Holy Spirit is working to transform Christians so that they progressively imitate the holiness of God in their own lives. This is the mark of genuine mental health. We want to, if, if you ever want to do a, a quick study, um, if you go out to like the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association and look up their definitions of mental health, very, very uh, arbitrary, very vague. We don't, we, we don't really have a good definition for mental health in the secular community. But, but for the Christian, uh, mental health is in part defined in reflecting the holiness of God. Um, God's holiness also sets the stage for counseling unbelievers in that their greatest hope for transformation is faith in Jesus Christ. And so it becomes a, an issue of uh, evangelism. Love. Francis Schaeffer once wrote these words, the validity and meaning of love rest upon the reality that love exists between the Father and Son in, and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. It is rooted in what has always been in the personal relationship existing in the Trinity before the universe was created. Since God is love and actively expresses love within his triune nature, then as creatures fashioned in his image, people have the capacity to love. The supreme objective of soul care is that God's grace would flourish in the lives of those we serve, that they would be empowered more and more to love God and others. So again, this is, this is setting the stage for what is the ultimate purpose of this meeting and uh, what is the ultimate purpose of healing and what is the, the ultimate purpose of, of, of getting better? It's to love God and love others. That's what we were designed to do. Truth. Since God is the embodiment of truth and has chosen to reveal himself in scripture, humanity has been given objective values and universal principles that should guide all of life. Biblical soul care is derived from scriptural truth and ascribes to the idea that by God's grace, people may be empowered to know and become set free by his truth. Since all people are image bearers of God, they have the capacity to know truth as expressed in general revelation, such as creation, while providing humanity many wonderful gifts derived from such knowledge, such as technology, medicine, art, music, and architecture. And again, to, to be able to stand on a firm foundation of absolute truth is very empowering as a counselor or a person in soul care. If you were to go and get your master's degree in psychology, do you know what they would tell you about truth in your ethics class? Yeah, we don't have it. <laughs> uh, and that's... Yeah. And when I went through my ethics class, I started having a big crisis of, am I going to be able to do this? Um, but we have the, the awesome privilege because God has spoken to us through his word. I mean, just think about that for a minute. How amazing just that thought is that the God of the universe has spoken and then he gives us ears to hear. And because of that, we are exposed to actual truth, which gives us a wonderful structure to minister to people in their deepest need.
let me just go through these uh, last few here. Righteousness. Biblical soul care affirms the need, honor, and satisfaction of being conformed to the righteousness of God and how we deal in fairness, justice, and goodness with all people. It also affirms the absolute necessity of God's strength and grace to live out his righteousness. It affirms that believers are free to pursue this righteousness while already counted righteous in Christ. Unlike secular models of care, right thinking, right affections, right behaviors, and right decisions are based on God's holy and righteous character, not on subjective values, social norms, or professional preferences. So again, that gives us uh, structure. Mercy, uh, biblical soul care affirms that God's beauty is reflected in humanity as people grow in their capacity to operate with hearts of mercy. Mercy is offering to others that which they do not deserve. Operating in mercy means that people forego justice and instead extend love, kindness, patience, and joy even when others have not earned it. It's a very powerful uh, thing when dealing with people in marriage, especially. Um, I'll often ask people, what is the opposite of justice? They'll say, it's injustice. I'll say, no, it's mercy. Your spouse may deserve uh, for you to say certain things, but you should not do that. You should extend them mercy. You should give them what they don't deserve. Give them love. Give them kindness. Um, and then as a counselor, as a, as a person who's helping, sometimes people will come at you with harshness and anger and frustration, and you'll want to give it right back to them. Give them mercy. And mercy's not always just giving them their way. Sometimes, you know, mercy's ex expressed in speaking the truth in love also. Last one, and then we're done. Beauty. Humans are wired to create and enjoy beauty. Beauty points people to God. Beauty is pleasurable. God is glorified when people enjoy beauty and pleasures to his glory. Biblical counseling seeks to point people to God in both beauty and pleasure. The beauty of love as expressed by a husband and wife. The beauty of creation as expressed in the sexual union of a man and woman in marriage. The beauty of life as expressed in the product of that union. And the beauty of worship as expressed in music, singing, art, and prayer. We just want to help people recognize the beauty um, that God's fingerprints are in everything beautiful and pleasurable. Uh, there again, God is the center of all of this. And we, when, when a person is enjoying uh, uh, the joys of a, a, of a nice conversation with their spouse, that there's something beautiful about that that points to God. And it helps people realize this isn't just a mundane conversation I'm having with my spouse. This is worship, and this is reflecting the beauty of our Creator. Let me pray. Father, how privileged we are that you have revealed yourself to us in such amazing ways. And even in what you revealed to us in Scripture, it's only scratching the surface of your infinite nature. But as we seek to step into the lives of other people, help us always make it about you. And give us the skills to help all counsel be about your glory and your beauty so that people would begin to see life in a very different way. We pray, God, that, uh, that if there are people here that are struggling, uh, that you would reveal yourself to them in some powerful ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you.